Good uh, day, everybody, and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JEMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted that you could join us. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that we can use to improve our clinical practice and patient care. The Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on Wednesday, July 21st. Uh, the article for that call is, A 42-Year-Old Man Considering Whether to Drink Alcohol for His Health, by Dr. Ken uh, uh, um, uh, Mukamel. I'm sorry about that. I probably uh, probably mispronounced his name. It appeared in the May 26, 2010 issue of JAMA. And being from Oregon, where we grow spectacular grapes and produce wonderful wine, I think this is a great article for us to review together. Uh, in July. Uh, today, uh, our featured authors are Dr. David Carr and Dr. Brian Ott, both of whom are with us today. And we will be reviewing the article, The Older Adult Driver with Cognitive Impairment. It's a Frustrating Life. And this occurred and was published in the April 28, 2010 issue of JAMA. And it is a part of the series, Care of the Aging Patient, From Evidence to Action. And we have done several articles that have been uh, in that series. Uh, so welcome to both of you, Dr. Carr and Dr. Ott. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Carr is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine and Neurology at Washington University School of uh, Medicine in St. Louis and Barnes Hospital. It's my alma mater. I went to medical school and, school and did my training there, so I have a certain proclivity to uh, Washington University. Dr. Carr is a clinician in the Memory and Aging Project in the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center uh, at Washington University and does a substantial amount of research uh, in Alzheimer's disease. And Dr. Uh, Brian Ott is at Brown Medical School in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and a geriatric neurologist at Rhode Island uh, Hospital in Providence. Uh, he uh, also is a faculty in their Alzheimer's disease and memory disorders uh, center. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Uh, as, the moderator, as the moderator of today's call, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of this article with the goal of driving performance improvement based on the article. Uh, the purpose of the call is for you to hear from the authors directly and allow you to ask uh, them questions. Here's how the hour will proceed. In just a minute, I'll pass over the phone to Dr. Carr, who will spend about 10 minutes summarizing the article, uh, and then we will pass the call uh, over to you, the participants, for your comments and questions. I want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. It's a great forum for which to get clarification on any, anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the authors and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps that you might take in using this information towards the improvement of care. There are approximately 75 phone lines connected to the call today with several participants per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both the IHI and JAMO websites as podcasts. Complete details are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on those sites. So let's get started. Once again, 
Let me introduce Dr. Carr, who will review the article. Dr. Carr? Thanks, Dr. Kylo. I want to start out thanking uh, you and the Institute and uh, co-author Brian Ott for uh, being here today. And I also want to thank those um, uh, clinicians and interested parties that have dialed in. Uh, just to review the article, uh, as might be expected, it took um, a great deal of time to bring together, and uh, Brian and I used a lot of excellent input from uh, experts uh, who have been in this field for a, a very long period of time, along with their own um, clinical experiences. Many of you have probably read the article or at least have a little bit of an idea of what it was uh, about. It does start out, as the clinician's corners do, with a patient story, and I'm sure many of you have your own um, um, excellent stories and anecdotes that hopefully you'll share with us as the hour goes on. This individual who is out on the West Coast uh, happened, uh, I think, to be a really good case, although it wasn't a classic history of dementia. Uh, it did outline an individual that has comorbidities. And for those of us that work in geriatrics and um, older adults, it's often not just about dementia, but there are other medical conditions that can often affect driving, and this gentleman was in that category. Uh, another area that I think his case uh, outlined uh, was one of mild cognitive impairment, and we've come to appreciate this gray area, if you will, that lies somewhere between um, memory loss, uh, age-related changes, if you will, and dementia. And that also is a struggle for clinicians. We may get into that discussion later on as we uh, talk about definitions and uh, diagnoses. Uh, the other issue that came through, and, and that's what's nice about this series, is you sort of weave the patient and the caregiver uh, into the decision-making process, this whole issue of referral and uh, the outline, if you will, or the uh, issue of driving cessation. We often get very focused in on predicting safety, and that's an important issue, but Admittedly, if this individual had Alzheimer's disease or those that do, eventually they will need to come off the road and stop driving. And uh, mobility counseling and alternative transportation issues are very important and uh, one that need to be discussed. As far as uh, the outline of uh, the evidence-based part, we did do uh, a Medline search, uh, as was described. It did give dates between 94 and 2009, although if you read Table 1 on crash statistics, we did have to dig back for a few years. Those first three citations were some of the uh, oldies but goodies in the uh, dimension crash citation field, so we did stretch that time period uh, a little bit. We really don't know right now how many individuals are in the road with dementia. We have some clues from a couple of, uh, a few articles that are out there. Um, when you go in and actually do research criteria for dementia, it seems that at least 4% over drivers over age 75 probably have an underlying dementia. But Jane Stutz and colleagues from uh, North Carolina did an interesting study where they actually did cognitive screens when people came in to do license renewal and over age 80. Uh, about one out of five people failed those screens, and those are people who we know uh, remembered to show up to renew their license. That doesn't count those individuals that continue to drive who didn't. So we do think it's common. It's out there. We're going to see more of it, obviously, based on the aging demographics. Uh, after that portion of the article, we, we move over to some of the driving outcomes. As many of you know, one of the limitations or one of the 
concerns many people have with determining fitness to drive or driving safety is what is your gold standard. We talk about several of those in the area of driving as related to dementia. Um, we have a table that summarizes the crash data that uh, we were able to find with our, re our reviews. And in general, uh, most, not all, but most studies do show an elevated uh, crash risk. And, and if you had to average the studies, uh, perhaps two to threefold. Uh, those um, studies that focused on driving simulators, perhaps no surprise uh, in general, uh, individuals with dementia do not do as well in a variety of different uh, outcomes uh, as um, uh, healthy uh, age match controls, similar to the performance-based road data. Uh, what's interesting is uh, many people do get concerned with the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, you know, should you be driving uh, at all? And we do cite a couple of studies from both of our sites where uh, you know, a significant portion of very mild and mild demented individuals uh, are able to pass road tests and, and still appear to be safe to drive. Not all, but some. And I think that's an area we'll probably get back to when we get into some of the discussions. No surprise, most of the evidence-based literature in this area focuses in on Alzheimer's disease. We have very little on frontal temporal dementia. Uh, there were a couple studies that are out there that do show similar impairment based on uh, driving simulation studies. At the time we did this review, we really couldn't find anything out there on Lewy body dementia. But for those of you and us who have dementia clinics, we do see a fair number of people with who we think have a sort of a Parkinson's dementia overlap. And as you might uh, imagine, the specific characteristics that may go along with that dementia could put someone at risk. Uh, we just didn't, uh, weren't able to find a lot of uh, any information actually in regards to that uh, research-wise. Regarding approaches to driving safety, uh, we did put out at least an algorithm or our step-by-step -step process um, in um, looking at driving uh, recommendations, obviously making sure you have a solid diagnosis, looking for reversible causes, Rating dementia severity, another difficult area, because again, we don't, I think, have a, a consensus or universally accepted dementia severity rating. Um, but it is important, we think, to use something. And um, we can talk about what those somethings may be as we uh, get into uh, the discussion. We, we like also looking at other instrumental of activities of daily living. If those are impaired, that may be a proxy for driving impairment and then honing in on psychometric testing like visual spatial skills, executive function, that we know is associated with driving impairment. Um, from uh, the assessment, we also believe in taking a good history with our memory impaired patients. Obviously, we may not get a very accurate history, but hopefully you, uh, those clinicians that are doing evaluations will have access to an informant or a caregiver. And by asking them pointed questions, we do believe a lot of times we will find the new onset of driving behaviors, uh, which could be associated with the new onset of dementia, which may also be a red flag putting individuals uh, at risk. All that information we try to put together when an individual with dementia is in our clinic, um, the history, examination, psychometric tests, the dementia level severity, the functional assessment, and then sort of make a decision. I, I kind of like to use the traffic sign, green to go, the impairments are mild, uh, we're going to monitor over time. Red, we've heard enough, we have enough information, this individual should be off the road. Or often we're in that yellow area where it's caution, we need some additional input. We point out in our um, article that uh, one of those referral possibilities 
would be a driving clinic. Um, Brian and I, I think our slant is to utilize um, driving evaluation clinic if one of, is available in your area and they have expertise in individuals with degenerative dementias. Uh, we found that additional information can be very helpful in clinical cases. We also acknowledge if you're, uh, whether you're in urban or rural areas, uh, there are barriers to that type of assessment. And it may be that uh, the primary care physician, uh, neurologist, neuropsychologist, uh, someone else may need to weigh in on that decision. We, we do believe that um, there are circumstances where it's very appropriate to refer to the state. You may be in a state where you have mandatory requirements for reporting. I know California is that way for dementia. So it's very important for clinicians to know their laws and um, know if they are going to refer what the uh, legal circumstances. In Missouri, we have uh, protection of uh, civil immunity for reporting in good faith. We also have anonymity. So uh, the information is not disclosed to the uh, patient or family, although we do that as a rule uh, from an ethical standpoint anyway in our clinic. The article also has several tables. If you haven't had a chance to review, in addition to the crash table I mentioned, um, we do have uh, a nice review, and, and Brian did the bulk of the work on, on many of the tables here on some of the expert uh, recommendations. Um, table two talks about um, consensus recommendations. And I think if you summarize those, uh, we would say those individuals with moderate dementia by most uh, conferences and or societies would preclude driving. Um, those with uh, very mild to mild dementia, the decision has to be individualized, at least at this point. And then table three has a nice summary of some of those neuropsychological tests and test batteries as a predictive of performance on road tests. And uh, there's been a lot that has been gained over the last five to 10 years with classification rates for some of these tests uh, approaching 80 or even over 80%. Um, I think it's fair to say we still don't have a test battery yet that we would you know, recommend or ad adopt uh, and, and achieve a consensus on. But, but I do think these tests can identify individuals that are risk or at risk who we think may have difficulty and could be referred on for uh, additional testing. In my last minute, let me just wrap up um, uh, the information on uh, mobility counseling. It'd be amiss if we didn't spend a little time on this with the demented driver as to end the summary. Probably just as, if not important, than the risk assessment is how we were going to deal with this situation. Referral to a social worker. Uh, if you have a nurse uh, in clinic that can spend time or uh, the clinician has time to you know, communicate the transportation alternatives. We did have some useful web resources of organizations that keep track of what may be available in your community. We also recognize that may be very limited. For those refractory patients with dementia that uh, refuse to come off the road, very difficult situation, but we do have a box two in our article that talks about some steps that you can take, you and the family can take, to try to help uh, get that individual off the road when you realize that needs to be done and they lack the uh, insight. Uh, we recognize uh, none of those may work in any individual case, but hopefully there's something on the list there that may be um, appropriate. Brian, uh, Dr. Kylo, any other comments before we um, turn it over for uh, questions? That was great, David. Brian, anything else from you before we 
Uh, I would just add one point that I think is an important one is that the uh, the magnitude of this as a public health problem is debated uh, because the people with dementia, even though on a per mile basis, as you can see from the article, have an increased risk for getting into crashes, they reduce their travel and mileage. And so that as a group, they're not getting into a lot of crashes compared to other high-risk groups such as teenagers. And that gives, I think, some important perspective on the the problem. Yeah, great. Well, uh, it's great having both of you on the call today, and we now want to turn the call over to you, uh, the participants, for your comments or questions and your experience in this regard. Uh, as is true of all of the other articles in this series, the JAMA series, Care of the Aging Patient, uh, this article, uh, like the others, is, I think, very applicable to our daily practice um, and uh, something we deal with. Uh, on a regular basis, uh, certainly in primary care, and I'm, I'm sure in uh, dementia clinics, is how to talk to families and to the older adult with cognitive impairment about a sensitive issue such as driving, which has a lot to do with their freedom and uh, and uh, things like that. So uh, highly pertinent. So let's go ahead and turn over. Uh, Melanie will come back on and tell you how to get in the queue to ask questions or give us your comments. Melanie? Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please do so by pressing the star key, followed by the digit 1 on your touchtone telephone. If you are using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Once again, if you do have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone telephone at this time. And we'll pause for just a moment to give everyone an opportunity to signal. Sounds good. Thanks. So Dave, I went on, I, I just Googled as you were talking, I Googled uh, something like Driving Assessment Alzheimer's Portland to see what I would come up with. And I didn't come up with anything that made sense. So I went to the Alzheimer's Association website, and I haven't gotten very far there. So how do I find, how do we find um, uh, the right place to do those driving assessments? So a couple of resources that come to mind and, and uh, seem to work here for uh, the Midwest area. One is the uh, National AOTA, uh, the American Occupational Therapy Association website. They have links to driving evaluation. They actually have a sort of a driving clinic zip code finder that uh, you can put your zip code in and up will pop in a geographic area. And I think you can even put how many miles away from where you are, where the driving evaluation clinics are that have been certified through um, AOTA. A second resource for us here in St. Louis is through the chapter of the uh, Alzheimer's Association. And I think most of the local chapters will have an area on their website um, where you can have local driving evaluations. And we have fairly many places here in St. Louis, uh, maybe um, 10 or 15, and they keep those up to date. So that might be another resource for listeners. Yes, I saw that. It's on there. If you go to the AOTA website, it's AOTA.org. Down on the left-hand side, there's an older driver safety link. And that's as far as I've gotten so far, but it looks like that's the area to go to to find, uh, find the resource. Great. Um, Melanie? Yes, we do have one question that came in, and it's from Dr. Susan Marcolina with Health Point Community Health Centers. Hi, how are you? Hello. I really like your comment about using IADL impairment as a proxy for driving impairment, and I wonder if there's any kind of literature that shows the correlation between the two, because that's something really easy to do in the office. And um, kind of to show people, well, you know, if you're having trouble, like, working out your finances and, and negotiating the shopping aisle and things like that, you're going to have trouble on the freeways. So to me, it really 
has a nice parallelism. So that's one comment. And the second comment, um, I live in Seattle area, so Washington State is really onerous about reporting drivers um, that are impaired. You know, you'd have no immunity and no protection, and, um, you're, and the patients can sue you. Um, there's no anonymity either, so the patients can sue you for violation of um, privacy. And um, there are quite a few people that I found, my older patients, I, I, when I was in New Jersey and Philadelphia before, I used to tell the families, you know, just make me the bad guy. I will tell them they have to get off the road. But I can't really do that anymore because I have no teeth. So how, what kind of things do you, can, can you give me any kind of strategy to manage this other than, you know, kind of documenting me, telling them that they shouldn't be driving and they're caregivers? Great question. What, uh, what, uh, are you an internist or yes. primary care doctor? Yes, I'm an internist. Brian, do you want to uh, tackle the functional uh, question? And because um, I think you, I recall you uh, citing some literature in that area, and then maybe I could uh, tackle the uh, the reporting one. Yeah, we did a research study looking at uh, regional uh, images of function on spec scans and how that related to driving, and found that uh, it was really uh, frontal and right hemispheric uh, and right occipital changes that related to impaired driving, but we also did an ADL scale at the same time, and ADLs in many ways relate to frontal lobe functioning, uh, and, and so there's an intersection of the two, and you could actually think of driving as being like the ultimate instrumental activity of daily living, so yeah. it's not surprising that it's a good proxy for general IADLs, and there's reason to believe that you know there's a commonality in terms of the brain pathways that gets disrupted in causing difficulties with using you know a television uh, monitor compared to using a, a, an automobile and I think that's why when we looked at the comparison between IADL function and driving function we saw a very high correlation and and so it's important if you see IADL decrements is to uh, then talk about driving when uh, discussing patients in the office very good. Okay. And then uh, regarding the second uh, aspect, uh, a, c a couple of thoughts. So th this is a huge issue in um, wanting to refer and knowing that, um, you know, you could be, um, there could be some potential litigation for breach of confidentiality. On the other hand, if you have an impaired driver and you don't report for a third party, there's also um, a potential legal risk there. Um, and and uh, both sides of the coin have been shown in different cases in, in, in tort law, and I can't speak for the state of Washington. So, so to some extent, physicians that don't have specific laws um, that either protect them uh, either way uh, can be in a double legal bind, or bind, I'm sorry. So Which is blind, where we're at. Blind yeah. and bind, right. So, so number one, I think it's important with the demented driver that at a minimum you, you document your recommendation not only with the individual but some surrogate decision maker who you do believe has decision-making capacity. And I think if you've documented it and you've told it to both the driver, recognizing the person probably has memory problem and either doesn't have the insight, doesn't believe it, or uh, will refuse to follow it, you've got somebody else there, and so at least part of that responsibility has been shared. So I think most people would say that's a minimum. Second level is a lot of these situations aren't necessarily uh, urgent, and as Brian mentions, you know, based on crash rate, et cetera, a lot of people we think need to come off, but uh, unless they've had three crashes and they're, um, it's, you know, we really think it's, it's uh, 
uh, a high-risk situation, this is often a process, and you can kind of work through that and follow up with the nurse and keep documenting and hopefully get to the point where um, with either road tests or feedback, you can get that person off the road. But, but I think there are some situations where you're probably faced that these are um, just, uh, you, you, you know, uh, out there, you think the risk is high, and, and you are ethically um, um, in, in strong uh, ground, if you will, to, to refer that individual. And, and again, yes, there could be a nuisance suit, but the reality is licensing is decided by the state. Uh, not by you. And so the worst thing that would happen if you refer somebody is, you know, they have to go in, have a test, and if they retain their license, fine. If they don't, that's just further um, verification that you sent somebody in who shouldn't be there. And and I don't happen to believe that the state process is that easy that they coach every get everybody through. That may happen during license renewal, but we just published a study about a year and a half ago. Less than 4% of people in our state retain their license when they're referred in. So um, it's tough. It's a tough situation. Uh, I would also recommend legal counsel if you do develop a policy that makes sense for your state and, and get some uh, legal advice. Okay. Susan, uh, uh, did that answer your question? It is a complex issue. Yeah, it is. Um, basically, you know, we do that. Um, it's, it's, if you, well, people here love their cars, and they don't like – well, there is no public transportation in Seattle, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, and it's really, really difficult, and people don't like to have to plan for transportation. So it's a very difficult thing to do. Agreed. Sure. Agreed. Um, great. Well, we appreciate it. Thanks for calling in. Okay. Thank you. Melanie? And we have no other questions at this time. Okay. Uh, uh, feel free to follow the instructions that Melanie gave you in terms of uh, how to get in the queue. This is a really interesting topic. And again, we're not just interested in your questions, but if you have any experiences that would give us insights in this regard, that would be delightful. We did have well. a few questioners come in just now. Okay. If go you'd ahead. like to take those. Go ahead. All right. We'll go next to Lisa Hunt with Carolina's Rehab Hospital. Great. Welcome, um, Lisa. I actually have two questions. I don't know if I can do two at a time. One was, are there any simulators that are out here that are uh, more high-tech that closely simulate driving versus the older versions that really don't mimic um, actual driving skills? And my second question is, if you do have a patient with um, the mild deficits or mild dementia problems and you test them and at that point they're still able to drive, is there a recommendation for how often they should be reassessed? Is it like a six-month or once a year, or what are the recommendations for that? Great questions. Brian, why don't we split that one up? Do you have a preference? Um, well, as far as the, the, the simulator question, um, the problem with simulators is that there's a lot of um, – a debate about how well they really uh, reproduce uh, real-world driving, um, and uh, and the other limitation of simulators is about at least 10% or maybe up to even 30% in some cases people get simulator sickness, so they're sometimes hard to tolerate. Um, so we don't recommend that as the first or the the ideal um, test for uh, driving fitness. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, Dave, but also I'm not aware of uh, I would agree. relatively cost-effective or inexpensive uh, simulators that are available for commercial use. Uh, for In large part, they're being used uh, in research settings right now. Uh, not to say that may not change in the near future as we get more experience with the simulators and, uh, and validate them against real-world driving. 
No, I would I would agree, and and in regards to the, uh, um, uh, I'm trying to recall the other issue I think was regarding how long should if somebody does pass in the mild dementia stage, uh, are there recommendations regarding follow up and. Uh, um, Linda Hunt uh, had done a study, a uh, longitudinal study here with uh, Jan Ducek and Dr. Morris, and uh, similarly, uh, uh, Brian can talk about uh, his data uh, at, at his center. Uh, but it, it does look at over the course of six months to a year, uh, we often do see individuals with Alzheimer's disease decline. And so some of our recommendations have been um, uh, at the six-month to 12-month year uh, mark uh, to consider retesting. Uh, we acknowledge that that is um, an expense, obviously, because most of these driving evaluations are out-of-pocket and insurance does not cover, although that's not always consistent depending on the program, but it often is. Uh, but we also recognize the fact if you do pass any given year, um, uh, over time, we would expect uh, the disease to progress and skills to deteriorate. Any comments on that, Brian? Or? Yes. In our uh, longitudinal study, uh, we, look, we broke people down according to whether they had mild dementia or very questionable, which was roughly equivalent to MCI. Um, and what we found is that the people who had mild dementia, the average time that they were able to continue driving safely was only one year. So if, with that short uh, time sequence, I think a six-month reassessment uh, makes a lot of sense. For the people who had uh, questionable or very mild dementia, the, the average time that they were able to continue driving safely was two years. So I think in those cases, extending it from a six-month follow-up to a year may be uh, reasonable. Yeah, makes sense. Yep. Interesting. And so that would at least give you the opportunity to have repeated conversations with them and sort of prepare them for what's coming, even if they pass the first time around and exactly. prepare the family. Well, and I, I think that's uh, a huge issue because uh, never underestimate the education and uh, we get the impression that individuals who go through the process that pass they kind of realize, well, we got through now, and it makes you wonder, have they changed their behaviors? Because I think uh, Brian's recent publication, Neurology, would indicate those individuals that pass their road test, uh, I think their crash rate either goes down, is that right, Brian, or at least is uh, similar to healthy controls? Yeah, over the three-year period, when if we look at the people with dementia who are tested every six months, that group had a lower crash rate than our elderly controls. But, you know, that's because they were monitored so closely and the ones we thought were hazardous were, were taken off the road. Right. And, in fact, I think we, they had a lower crash rate, so I think we may have been too big a risk even uh, in, in taking them off the road. But certainly it turned out to be a, a relatively safe group of people over that period of time as we followed them, given right. that type of supervision. Yeah. Super. Uh, Lisa, anything else on those points? No, we had a simulator uh, back in the early 80s, and we experienced the same uh, problems with people getting uh, motion sickness and, and the elderly population not having a clue as to how, the sim you know, how what they did the simulator had anything to do with the film that they were watching. So we got rid of it, and we actually have gone to utilizing driving schools for the on-the-road, and that has been uh, much more helpful. We just didn't know if anything was new that had come out that we weren't aware of that you know, may be helpful, so that makes total sense. And I think currently we are recommending six months to a year for reassessments with most of the dementia and Alzheimer patients. So that just kind of confirmed that we're doing what we need to be doing. Thanks Great. for calling in. Yeah, I did go to the uh, 
I've been searching around on the uh, American Occupational Therapy Association website, and I did find a location where you put in your uh, your uh, zip code. I got two back. None of them look particularly uh, pertinent. So I wonder if it's spotty around the country in terms of where you would send somebody for a real evaluation. It could be that these, the two that I have, which look tangential to this real topic, it, it could be if I called them, they might be on target, but it doesn't look so from the descriptions that they gave. Could be. There are other uh, uh, resources for uh, driving uh, programs. There's another group that does certification. I think it's um, ADED, A-D-E-D, the Association for Driving Rehabilitation Specialists. Um, and I suspect they may have a similar site. I'll, um, while we're talking, I'll kind of go through there and see if they've got uh, um, some helpful links. Because, uh, again, many, many sites are OT-based, but some are, you know, based by driving education specialists sure. and that sort of thing. I suspect uh, that there are similar things with the post-stroke patient. So some of these similar issues about whether they're competent to, uh, to drive or driver retraining. Yes. Yeah, same sort of stuff. Okay, great. Uh, Melanie? Yes, we'll go next to Erna Bruce with Vancouver Health Authority. Hi, uh, I'm sitting in a room with about 16 therapists at Victoria General Hospital in Victoria, BC. Wonderful. Um, Hello, everyone. Hello. <laughs> um, we, this is an absolutely perfect, timely discussion for us, so thank you for that. Um, I'm curious about, again, the... Um, the idea of IADL impairment as proxy, and I was just wondering if you can comment on what kind of IADL assessment process. Was it functional assessment, anecdotal evidence, or standardized assessment tools that were used to look at the IADL dysfunction? In the study that I mentioned, what we used was the Lawton and Brody Instrumental Activities of Daily Living Scale, which is a a standard in uh, in many clinics, and it, it covers, I think, it was maybe 10 or 12 different IEDLs, including things like telephone, shopping, medication management, uh, cooking, laundry, uh, and so forth. Yeah, and, and I um, we want to stay evidence-based, but we just completed a study, and we hope to get it out in peer review soon, that used the uh, uh, functional uh, assessment uh, questionnaire. And um, the, um, uh, the FAQ, and we use that in our ADRC, actually had some uh, pretty good uh, correlation with predicting uh, driving failure and the specific activities, probably not a surprise, were uh, the finances and uh, being able to uh, uh, cook uh, and put the recipes uh, together. Uh, but I have to say, and again, these are preliminary findings, that um, I, I don't think those are going to be uh, strong enough uh, predictors uh, to actually decide uh, should someone drive or not, but I do think there, as as data accumulates, we're going to find um, that they are probably useful red flags in determining who may be at risk for driving impairment, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think another, uh, I agree, Dave, that's a good point, because we also uh, incorporate knowledge about cognitive functioning, not just daily living functions, and we, we spend a fair amount of, of discussion in, in our article talking about an instrument called the clinical dementia rating, which is which, which has proven to be useful in a number of studies, but what the clinical dementia rating does is it incorporates cognitive function. They ask about memory and orientation, 
and judgment, but then they also ask about ratings on uh, function in home life, function in uh, community life, and function in self-care to come to a, a bigger gestalt about you know the severity of their dementia at the time. And, and that's a pretty robust uh, predictor of, of how impaired one might be as a driver. And, and we have in our article uh, an e-table reference for the clinical dementia rating. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to go to the e-table, it may be worthwhile in sort of looking and to see how things map up. There is a site where you can uh, be trained uh, online through Washington University in St. Louis on the clinical dementia rating. Uh, but I think the e-table helps summarize those different functional domains and uh, at least will give you a little bit of a map or an outline on uh, where we're at. And, and, and again, those individuals that with, have moderate dementia uh, we really think should be off the road where those with 0.5 or 1 need uh, further assessment. Very mild or mild dementia. Great. Uh, Ernie, anything else from our friends in Victoria? Um, thank you very much for that. Uh, one of the things that we're working with right now is using the executive function performance test. This came to us because of the frequency that we're having to do um, functional um, cognitive assessment for folks who are heading down the path of needing adult guardianship. And so we're working on trying to standardize our approach to assessing you know, the risk factors and that kind of thing. And we're seeing, you know, a strong correlation with the same folks who have concerns about when they're having the IADL dysfunction having also driving concerns. So it's interesting to look at some other um, assessment approaches from an OT particularly point of view. So thanks for that information. Thanks for calling in. Hey, so Erna, how do, how do patients get to you? Um, we, we are the Center for Vancouver Island for neuro um, conditions, so we have the traumatic brain injury population, the stroke population, as well as just a really highly geriatric um, uh, living environment. So we have lots and lots and lots of uh, the mild cognitive impairment folk and as well as the more specific, younger, neurologically impaired people. So we have a therapist working in different groupings, but finding a lot of this, the crossover of the, um, the issues around driving safety. And, and so if I'm a primary care physician in uh, the Victoria area, do I refer the patient to you? And if so, what do I, so what do I refer them for? Well, in, we're, we're in an acute care environment here. We have, um, you know, we see a lot of the folks that what's happening is we're flagging a lot of the folks in the acute care environment and looking at how do we get this followed up. So it's, for us, it's, it's the other way around and working with the physicians in the community um, to access things like we have a geriatric outpatient clinic uh, with a, an interdisciplinary team. Um, we have inpatient neuro rehab and outpatient neuro rehab, and the outpatient neuro rehab has neuropsychology in, in together with physiatry and uh, the therapy team. So we have a few different choices, but one of the things that we're realizing is we don't have a comprehensive list of options. So that right. it is pulling that inventory together of what are what are the group choices. Sure, sure, super. Well, appreciate that. 
And uh, uh, Dave and Brian, that's an interesting point. Is that what is we we talk about this largely as if it's an outpatient issue, and it is largely an outpatient issue. But what is the role of the uh, of the inpatient side uh, in this regard? Because they're obviously identifying and interacting with these individuals quite frequently. Well, we struggle with that here at Barnes. Um, we have an OT that actually was from out in the Vancouver area. They have um, especially some expertise uh, at one of their clinics in visual impairment and visual rehabilitation. And she's on our neurosurgery neurology floor and seeing these acute um, strokes and um, you know, subdurals, et cetera. And we really lack, uh, you know, really good predictive tools, um, you know, in hospital settings. The sort of uh, uh, least approach they're using right now is to use some components of the AMA's address battery and uh, try to um, uh, see who's impaired. But uh, the ultimate is when they're discharged, they say, well, you need to follow up with your physician and don't drive for now. But uh, it would be nice to be able to go beyond that. But it, it's difficult when you have acute injuries because you've got a period of time where you do have to allow for resolution or improvement in some of their cognitive domains. Right, and then I'm assuming that there's, there should be a recommendation for at least some time-limited, uh, you know, do not drive instructions. Right, right, and I think that obviously would uh, vary on, and Brian, jump in here, on the extent and the uh, duration of injury. Most of the literature on stroke that I've reviewed, often there's this six-month period of time, and that's in St. Louis, so is often sort of a standard, but I, I'm not sure how evidence-based that uh, period of time is. Right. Okay. Uh, Brian, anything else on that point? Well, just in terms of um, starting evaluations as inpatients, there are certainly a, a number of comorbid problems in the elderly that uh, we mentioned in the article that have to be addressed that could start to be addressed in the hospital setting in some cases, such as um, people with pulmonary failure and sleep apnea, people with syncope, uh, people with seizure disorders, uh, people with severe rheumatic, uh, rheumatoid problems, and uh, the overall evaluation of the elderly patient for driving should include all those uh, medical aspects, which may be all potentially uh, treatable. Right. Good point. Right. Yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, Melanie? Yes, we do have one more question, and that is from Allison Patterson with Andover Health Authority. Hey, Allison. Oh, hi. Um, I'm calling from Victoria uh, Geriatric Outpatient Clinic. Um, I just wondered if you had come across any um, support groups for people that have lost their driver's license and how, if you have, how, how were they set up and were they found to be any value? Because it seems to me that um, if given a chance to sort of talk through it, that they come to better acceptance of losing their license and then um, instituting other methods of transportation. So I was just wondering if there's anything going on in other areas? Well, it's funny you should mention that. And then, uh, Brian, if you've got some additional um, expertise, jump in that. First of all, I think that's a great idea uh, to have uh, support groups for those that are delicensed or even may lose their license because there's huge issues psychologically, social connectedness, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, we have a huge number of Alzheimer's chapter support groups here in St. Louis. But I don't think any that focus on that are even probably specialized. But I am aware in Canada of Bonnie Dobbs' work, and she's actually, if, if you get online and just search Bonnie Do uh, Dobbs and driving cessation, 
she actually developed um, and studied uh, driving cessation support groups for individuals with uh, dementia and uh, uh, really found that um, you know, quality of life and um, social connectedness and those sorts of things could really uh, be better addressed in those types of situations. Now, I can't tell you if this was, um, uh, you know, a grant or uh, if it's been reproduced or if there are other areas, but I know the concept has been looked at, studied, and it warrants further, um, uh, I think, exploration because, uh, you know, the reality is the average male has about six, seven years without driving a car, and the average female about nine years. And we just don't plan for these things. And we need to, as a group, start systematically addressing them. And what better way to go about it than uh, you know, peer uh, support groups? Uh, so excellent, excellent uh, point. And we don't know how many of those last uh, those years that you point out are uh, tend to be in a facility for somebody where there is some sort of transportation options. Well, only five to six percent of older adults over age 65 are um, institutionalized. So, right, you know, I right. think it'd be the, uh, uh, you know, that certainly there's some, but it would be the minority of older adults. Right. Um, sure. Sure. Wait, Allison, anything else? Um, yeah, so that, I was actually Karen, but it, this is Allison now. Right. It's interesting you mentioned Bonnie Dobbs because we're having an in-service with her on Friday. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tell her I said hi. <laughs> yeah, she's talking about the SIMARD um, through the University of Alberta, a, a, a scale they can use for um, addressing, you know, should someone be driving and such. So we will talk to her about this as well. So. That'd be great. So anyone else in Victoria that doesn't hear about that, you can contact me and I'll get you connected up with that if you like. Super. Thank you. Thank you. I am just a little concerned that we've had two questions, uh, two groups from Victoria, one from Seattle and I'm from Portland, so I'm not sure if there's something going on in the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> but it does give me some concern. <laughs> right. uh, uh, Melanie, anything else, anybody else in the queue right now? I do not have anyone else in the queue, but just as a reminder, it's star one if you do have a question. Wonderful. We've had some great questions already in this, uh, I think, stimulating issue. Um, uh, David or Brian, what's, what do you think is the best way to deal with the family in these regards? Uh, I think the question um, that we had from Seattle, uh, I think, was uh, most pertinent about physicians' concern about the legal issues. Uh, any techniques or thoughts about how to best engage a family in helping them to make this decision along with us? Brian? Yeah, I think there are a couple of uh, important problems that come up with the families. Uh, one is if you have a spouse pair where one of them depends on the person with dementia to be the driver, uh, you have a really difficult situation where the spouse really doesn't want that person to stop driving or, or won't deal with the, the situation. And you then have to really counsel the spouse about uh, and other family members get them involved in terms of coming up with alternative transportation. Otherwise, you're not going to have much success and you're not going to know what's really going on with the person. And the other issue that comes up is, is the, the angry person with uh, dementia where the family doesn't really want to even broach the issue or deal with it because of the, the backlash that comes from discussing it or trying to take away the keys. And uh, it's important to recognize when you have that type of personality issue going on because I think the best way to diffuse that uh, and actually to diffuse it away from the physician is to make a referral 
to uh, like a driving uh, instructor or to get a professional evaluation. And I think those that's much better uh, accepted than you know traditionally uh, trying to deal with it with uh, the family and as a home and office issue. Right. I, I would agree, and I just would add to that there are some very uh, excellent and um, I'd go so far as to say elegant. Uh, educational resources uh, that are available for older drivers and demented drivers. And, and two pamphlets I'd like to comment on uh, or brochures are through the Hartford. You can get on the Hartford Insurance site and just put in older drivers or demented drivers. Um, one uh, such uh, brochure, We Need to Talk, is, kind of goes through this whole issue of uh, uh, older drivers and some of the uh, issues that may uh, come up. Um, and look at transportation alternatives and, and how to sort of diagram that out. There's also one called At the Crossroads, which uh, is just for the demented driver and their families and goes through the issues, sort of a checklist of driving behaviors, uh, a contract with my family. And I think those can also be helpful aids to the family in addition to uh, um, uh, what Brian mentioned in some of our interactions. Right, and one of the wonderful things that uh, JAMA does is at times have additional web resources uh, on the web. These will frequently print out, and there is a page and a half of web resources on dimension driving that can, comes attached to your article. So I'd encourage people to go there, and the Hartford um, group and the articles that you refer to, or the brochures you refer to, are listed there uh, in addition to lots of other resources in this regard. Correct. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, so Melanie, let us know if there's any additional calls in the queue uh, if they come in. And again, we'd be delighted to have some. We have just a few minutes left uh, before the end of the call. And um, so uh, as I am reflecting on this from the primary care physician's uh, perspective, which I think is where so much of this occurs, um, um, again, thinking about uh, what my system will look like. I'm used to having people come in who uh, are showing signs of dementia, and I think we're all fairly used to using a, mi a mini mental status exam to try to get a sense as to uh, the degree of impairment. And if you're going to suggest a, a pretty clear system uh, beyond that for most primary care physicians, to, for primary care physicians who deal with the elderly to have ready to go, I want to ask you, what would that look like? And I'm understanding now from a community resource perspective, if I could find a driving uh, safety evaluation uh, partner to refer people to, that would be one component of it. Uh, and uh, let's just run through the others so we can, uh, as we wind down the call, we can think about what those systems would look like. Sure. I think part of it is uh, whether you train office staff or, or yourself, if you adopt in the clinic, uh, some of the information that we talked about, both history and exam, for um, the clinic uh, setting. So, you know, asking, incorporating in some of the driving questions that would uh, go to a caregiver and informant. Um, you know, and maybe you can't do a trails B or a useful field of view in your office, but you might throw in a clock drawing task with that, uh, um, in addition to your mini metal to look at visual spatial skills. Uh, speaking of the mini metal, I mean a good um, you know screen and also uh, one that you could follow individuals longitudinally for changes. A little controversy over whether it's a useful um, test for uh, identifying driving impairment in in the recent updated practice parameter that was published in Neurology about the same time as our article. I think they made the suggestion that uh, 
those individuals scoring less than 24 may be at risk. Uh, I think Brian and I acknowledge in our article that the mini mental by itself uh, it probably can't direct uh, uh, driving recommendations as far as um, whether someone should drive, but certainly if you start getting down into uh, uh, low 20s or teens, that may be identifying someone who might need to be uh, studied. But uh, in addition to the office, I think having a good uh, connectivity with the social worker, if you don't have one in your office, certainly somebody that can start doing that counseling and looking for alternative transportation options in the community are certainly uh, an option. So those are a couple things that come to mind. Brian, any additions here? I think it's also helpful to have access to uh, a subspecialist who has training in uh, evaluating dementia. Uh, we did a study where we compared different types of practitioners' ability to predict how people would drive on a road test who had cognitive impairment. And what we found was that uh, people who had uh, specific expertise in evaluating dementia did better than those who did not. And it didn't really relate to how many years of experience you had. For instance, uh, two people who are just fellows in geriatric psychiatry and geriatric neurology did as well as myself in, in making predictions. So although the mini mental in the busy office practice in primary care may tell you there's a cognitive problem, uh, it helps to go further than that in determining how severe is that problem in guiding the decision making about whether to uh, do road testing or advise a person to, to withdraw from driving. Would agree. Great. Well, that's all the time we have for questions. It's been a really wonderful conversation uh, and a review of the article in this challenging area of the older adult driver with cognitive impair impairment. Uh, Dr. David Carr and Dr. Brian Ott, I really appreciate both of you being on the call today. I'm happy to be so. Thanks for asking us. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion will t take place on Wednesday, July 21st, and the article will be A 42-Year-Old Man Considering Whether to Drink Alcohol for His Health. And that article appeared in the May 26, 2010 issue of JAMA. We look forward to you joining us on that call as well. Sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, Author in the Room is an interactive conference called Designed to Accelerate Changes that Can Improve Clinical Care. Thanks to all of you for being a part of today's Author in the Room call. Good day.